preserving the history of Strategic Air Command, the Cold War, and aerospace artifacts. Welcome to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Coming to you from the museum just off I-80 at exit 426. Now here's your host, Museum Marketing Director, John Leffler, Jr. Always appreciate you stopping by and checking out the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. I am your host, John Leffler, Jr. Uh, joining me today, our curator, Brian York. We've got some special guests as we're going to be continuing with our Strategic Air Command 75th Anniversary Series. We'll get to that in just a second, but I did want to share with you a couple of events that we have coming up here at the museum. The second weekend of May, Saturday, May 8th, we have another flight night. This is our 21 and over event. Uh, we have kind of a um, astronomical theme, I guess, what we have going on for the May 8th flight night. Infinite Loop Virtual Reality will be here. The Omaha Astronomical Society will be here as well. We'll have a chance to uh, stargaze, which uh, will be awesome out here at the museum, just off uh, exit 426 or off of I-80 at exit 426. Um, we have free simulator rides for you while you're here. Again, the uh, Flight night going on from 6 to 10 p.m. on Saturday, May 8th. We'll have some aircraft open, uh, open for you to view, including our uh, shuttle cockpit. So you can learn more about that. And uh, actually, if you want to get your tickets now, uh, you can head to sacmuseum.org. We also will have tickets available at the uh, admissions desk when you arrive. Again, Saturday, May 8th, 6 to 10 p.m. We have another flight museum, flight night going on here at the museum. Uh, also, our F-117 had a lot of emails about that. Uh, the F-117, the delivery of the fuselage was actually delayed uh, due to some technical issues with some equipment that was taking off the paint uh, from the aircraft, which uh, had obviously some stealth technology in it, some uh, absorbing materials and all sorts of crazy stuff. It's way above my pay grade, but they got that figured out. And uh, May 19th, we should take uh, delivery or at least uh, be able to get the uh, F-117 on the road. We're expecting that it will be here May 24th. That's right. We'll be able to uh, have that available for viewing in our restoration hangar Fingers crossed by Memorial Day weekend. All right, so that's just a little bit of what's going on here at the museum. Again, our website, a great resource for everything that's going on, including summer camps. Jeez, I forgot to mention those as well. Summer camps going on June 7th through July 30th. You can learn about everything we have going on here at the museum at sacmuseum.org. All right, so the SAC 75th anniversary, we uh, celebrate that. Uh, actually had an event back in March, and uh, throughout the year, we're going to be using this, uh, this venue, our podcast, to feature some SAC warriors, including retired Colonel Ed Birchfield and retired Major General Bob Henson. They are the guests today on our museum podcast, and we will visit with them next on the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Don't forget, subscribe if this is your first time listening. Have a question? Guest request? Email marketing at sacmuseum.org. More of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast coming up. When you become a member of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum, not only do you enjoy unlimited admission to our world-class aircraft and aerospace museum, you help us preserve aviation history for future generations, restore aircraft, 
create new exhibits, and educate youth in our wide variety of educational programs focused on science, technology, education, and mathematics. Memberships are available for individuals, family, school teachers, and military. With your membership funds, you enable the museum to continue to grow and further its mission. Learn more about becoming a member of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org. Stay up to date with museum news and events. Sign up at sacmuseum.org for Flight Log, the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum e-newsletter. Back to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Back on the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast, I am John Leffler, Jr., Marketing Director here at the museum. And as I mentioned before we went to our uh, first break, if you have not already subscribed to our podcast, uh, this is your first time listening, please do so. And uh, you'll find out when we have new episodes out uh, a lot quicker if you subscribe. But also, we like to push those out through our social media channels. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and we also have a channel on YouTube as well. Uh, joining me are curator Brian York. And Brian, before we visit with our guest today, I wanted to ask, I had mentioned the F-117 is going to be here um, May 24th. Are you still planning on heading down to uh, Tonopah to pick that up? That is completely my intent. Uh, really excited about it. I mean, we're keeping our fingers crossed something else doesn't happen. We'll knock on whatever we got to knock on to make that sure that happens. But yeah, they're planning on loading out on the 19th, mm-hmm. uh, leaving on the 20th and myself, our education director, uh, Mark Straley, uh, facilities director, uh, Jeff Kalaski right now, the three of us are planning on going out there and helping escort, uh, the fuselage back here. So we have all the parts and pieces and uh, start getting it put together and have it on display for everybody. Yeah. Now we've talked a lot about what happened. I mean, briefly explain what, what caused the delay for us. Cause we really were supposed to have this almost a month ago now. I think it was the aliens from area 51, but I'm okay. not sure. That's what we uh, thought. No, it's, uh, they have a facility. They call it their media blasting facility and no, they're not going after the news channels or anything like that. It's, it's a material that they blast onto the aircraft to remove all paint and material. The paint on there is still classified. That material is still classified. So they have to remove all of it before we can get it to the museum. They had an, an issue with that. And because they are literally out in the middle of the desert, it's not like they just call the tech to pop over. So they have to make their, and they have to do analysis and they had to figure out from what we're told, they've got it up and running good enough to finish our aircraft. And then they're shutting down again. So May 19th, we'll pick it up. May 24th, it should be back here at the museum. Be, be offloading on uh, the 24th. Awesome. Awesome news. Well, you were mentioning classified, um, we're going to try to declassify some information here today with our guests. Uh, throughout the year, we've got uh, what we're going to do is is effectively a series um, visiting with SAC warriors, those that serve with Strategic Air Command. This is the 75th anniversary of Strategic Air Command. And today for us, uh, a couple of very special guests. We're going to uh, visit with retired Colonel Ed Birchfield and retired Lieutenant General uh, Bob Henson and um you said I could call you Ed, so I'm going to call you Ed. Um, <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll start with you. How many years uh, did you serve in Strategic Air I Command? I was in the Air Force for 28 years, but 24 of that was in SAC. And Bob, for you? I was 33 years in the Air Force, 18 years in SAC. And what was, the, I guess, this is a question for both of you, but I guess some of the positions that you held while you were in Strategic Air Command, Ed? 
the uh, when I well, I started off in Air Defense Command and uh, in the data automation business. So my, that was my introduction to the Air Force and ADC just kind of went with the flow and those kind of things. So then as I was coming back from Thule, Greenland, I wound up coming into the missile operations at SAC at F.E. Warren. And that introduced me to SAC regulations and SAC checklists. And there's nothing like that in the world. And there's, there were only two ways to do things. There was the SAC way and the wrong way. <laughs> and for folks in other parts of the Air Force, when you came into SAC, it was a rude awakening. Uh, but the nice thing was you knew where you were going, you knew what you were supposed to do, and you did it. So my first experience in SAC was as a missile crew member with the Minuteman system, which was very new at that time, out at F.E. Warren. And uh, we had uh, 150 missiles at that time, and then later on they added another 50 Peacekeeper missiles, which my son pulled alert at some of the same sites I did 20 years later in the Peacekeeper system. And then after crew duty, I wound up at SAC headquarters. And once you got to SAC headquarters, you never left SAC headquarters. You go to another assignment, you come back. You go to another assignment, you come back. Once you figured out how to spell PSYOP, single integrated operational plan, then they never let you out. Uh, our other guest today is uh, retired Lieutenant General Bob Henson. So Bob, the positions that you held while you were in Strategic Air Command, well, I started out as an enlisted man uh, before I joined SAC, but then I uh, went through officer training school, um, got commissioned, and then went into uh, pilot training, finished pilot training, and ended up at uh, Castle Air Force Base, my first introduction to the lead-in training for B-52s uh, back in uh, 1971. Um, uh, I, I held positions as pilot, instructor pilot, squadron commander, commander at uh, various levels uh, throughout my career in SAC. And then unlike Ed, I left, went to Space Command, uh, and uh, not until I returned in, in 2002 as the vice commander at STRATCOM uh, did I come back and I sat in a position that I held as an executive officer to the then uh, Vice Commander of SAC, Monroe Hatch, at the, in those days. So talk about a history lesson. That's way back, and those are the kind of positions I held uh, most of the time. I got a question. There's so many different directions that I know we, we want to go with just, you know, your time in Strategic Air Command. But, but Ed, you had mentioned something about a rude awakening for those that go from the Air Force into Strategic Air Command, at least I think that I heard you say that correctly. What what, what were you taught? What are you referring to specifically? What what was that rude awakening? And for you personally, what was that ex experience that you're like, wow, this the is rude awakening? Were sack checklists? I mean, you did everything. You know, if you wanted to set the clock, there was a checklist for that. Uh, so you could imagine what we had checklists for. But it was just the discipline that was part of Strategic Air Command that I didn't see in other parts of the Air Force. Now they certainly had discipline and they certainly had checklists, especially if you were in operations. And, and that was the, the other part uh, as a non-rated person. This was my first opportunity to get into operations. And I think you quickly learn there's operations and everything else. And so that's where one 
the real mission is, flying the mission, launching the missiles, uh, pro providing the deterrence that the, the United States needs in its, in its uh, ability as a leader of the free world. And so th that's what changes. Where when you're, in a, when you're in SAC on a crew, flying or missiles, I mean, you're dealing with nuclear weapons all the time. That, that's all we did back when SAC uh, was still uh, the nuclear component of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Air Force. And so there, there could be no room for, gee, I think we'll try it this way, or we'll, we might do it that way. You, you had to do it the right way. And uh, trying to instill that in young crew members uh, and, and why they had to do it uh, became a later challenge when I was fortunate enough to command a squadron and then a, a missile wing. Uh, that's, that's just the exciting part of being in SAC. You knew what the mission was, you knew who the enemy was, which we have a hard time figuring out today, but then we knew exactly what the mission was, and our job was if deterrence fails, then we just bomb them back to the Stone Age. Hey, Ed, um, you, you talk about being uh, a missileer down there. Um, I think we probably have a lot of folks and I might benefit John even. Could you run through basically the, because you have a certain amount of time you go down in the launch facility. It, it varies by uh, what the systems were. We had Minuteman and when I, when I was still on active duty, part of the time we had the Titan missile, which was a storable liquid fuel missile, which had a really big warhead on top of it. Minuteman had a smaller warhead and then later MERV systems which were multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles. Um, so uh, you, you, you had a pre-departure briefing, just like, just like the crew side, the flying crew side, and then we drove out to our sites, and some of them were two, three hours away. So you drive out there, sometimes we used uh, helicopters, uh, we had UEs, and uh, when I was on crew, we had a lot of the uh, pilots coming back from Vietnam who flew UEs. So they thought they were still in combat taking us ground pounder missile guys out to the site and they'd come over the launch control facility where we were going and they'd just go in like they were going on a, on a mission. And so it got pretty exciting when we got to fly in helicopters. It was fun. One of the guys let me fly it a little bit one time. Anyhow, so you got out to the launch control facility uh, topside, you did a briefing with the security that was topside and with maintenance teams that might be there. And, and of course, the most important thing was talking to the cook who was going to bring your food down and the facility manager. Then you went downstairs, you did a changeover briefing about 100 feet underground, changeover briefing with the crew that was uh, had the site. And then you uh, we had a red box above the deputies console and in the box were the codes, the codes. There are lots of codes. I mean, there's codes everywhere. And, but these were the important codes. And they took their locks off. You looked at it to make sure they were in there. And then you put your locks on and you assumed the capsule. Crew departed, they went back. You stayed there for 24 hours and then just reversed that. Visiting with retired Colonel Ed Birchfield and retired Lieutenant General Bob Henson. And Bob, a question for you. You mentioned I, you said I started off as an enlisted man. And I'm, my, my question is, where was the inspiration? Where was the, what happened that was the drive for you to decide to enlist? 
um, Vietnam. Selective service uh, was uh, by a draft system back in the 60s. Uh, my draft number was 78. <laughs> Therefore, <laughs> I knew full well that I was going in the military. And, of course, the, the military at the time was one of the services, Army, Navy, or Air Force. Um, and I uh, had had some advice about joining the Air Force instead, so I did. And I, uh, the Air Force was only taking pilots or navigators at the time. And you had to take a physical, flight physical, before you got accepted. Well, I failed a flight physical on depth perception on my first take. My good advisory recruiter said, join, you can retake the physical in six months and then reapply. I took him at his word and did. I ended up at Scott Air Force Base, Illinois, uh, as an admin specialist to the 375th Aeromedical Airlift Wing, and I worked for the wing commander uh, at that time, uh, who called me in his office, wanted to know why I didn't go to uh, OTS or why I wasn't an officer since I already had my degree. I told him my sob story, and he said, well, you take the physical again, and I will get you into pilot training. Uh, I took it, passed it, and he did. Uh, and so from that point on, I was going into the pilot training uh, mode and all, all of that. Uh, first assignment was uh, Craig Air Force Base in Alabama for pilot training. Uh, went from there to Castle, where I went through B-52 training. Ended up, my first assignment was Blytheville, Arkansas. Uh, Blytheville Air Force Base, later known as Eaker. Um, my wife uh, and my eight-month-old son arrived at Blytheville, Arkansas, uh, to an empty ramp, a vacant housing. Uh, nobody's there because everybody's deployed to Guam or Thailand. Uh, within a few weeks after I arrived, uh, I get orders to go to Guam, uh, and I leave my wife and eight-month-old child in a brand-new community with no no contacts, no hadn't met anybody on base to speak of yet, uh, and I ended up going to, to Guam and spent a few months in Guam before we uh, all reconstituted back uh, to, to the states, all the airplanes, all the crews reconstituted after the Vietnam uh, uh, in, uh, era ended. Uh, and uh, we're sitting, uh, we're getting back to what Ed was describing, our uh, upgrading to uh, our nuclear roles uh, away from our conventional role that we had been pulling in, in Guam over Vietnam and Cambodia at the time. Uh, and that transition back to nuke was uh, quite a transition for those who had been steeped in the operations before they went to Guam. Uh, I had nothing different to speak of because this was my first assignment, and I didn't know how they did business before, but now I'm back into getting into all my nuke certs and getting up to speed on nuclear operations and pulling alert and all those kind of things. Ironically, after we reconstituted in October of 1973, as you may recall, uh, the Yom Kippur War started. Uh, and my first um, uh, indications of what SAC meant back in those days was 
we were called out in the middle of the night, called from home, told to bring our uh, deployment bags and to report to our squadrons, and we did. And nobody knew what was going on at the time except the commanders and the like. And so we're now uh, deploy, uh, reconstituting airplanes, putting airplanes on alert, and, and uh, ironically, uncertain of what was going to happen over the next few weeks or months, uh, given the situation in, in that part of the world. Uh, as, as you know, it ended within three or four weeks. Uh, I think uh, that's a lot of things that, that at the time really reflected on the relationship between the United States and Russia as a result of taking sides on Israel and Egypt and, uh, and, and that part of the world. So I, you know, I, I spent um, my first uh, few weeks on alert uh, back when we reconstituted, uh, and then the cycle began. And uh, unlike uh, Ed and his ICBMs driving out to your uh, sites, ours was on a ramp on a base. Uh, we would pull seven days of alert on, uh, typically uh, seven off and seven on. So it was continuous cycle. Uh, and during that period of time, uh, like Ed was describing, we uh, would change over with the outgoing crew. Uh, we would uh, uh, document all of the, take account of all the documents that we had in our possession, uh, all the launch codes, everything that was uh, set with the airplane. We had to pre-flight all the weapons that we had at the time. Um, we had a lot of gravity bombs and short-range attack missiles and those kind of things back in those days. So the accountability uh, became instilled in us pretty early, and certainly with the crews that re uh, reconstituted after Vietnam was getting back into the discipline of not taking things for granted, not going with just because you thought you could, but because uh, the checklist and the needs of the mission required that you have a pretty pristine airplane and, and you knew what was going on. So having the discipline of accepting, uh, you know, classified documents that are the nation's, uh, you know, toolkit to avoiding uh, nuclear attack was pretty uh, um, strenuous at the time. Uh, and not unlike what Ed and he, his folks were doing in ICBMs, that routine required that there be no failures. Uh, unlike the event several years hence that ended up with an airplane flying uh, south with nuclear weapons on board, uh, I have to admit that that would not have happened in the SAC days. That just wouldn't have happened. Well, all year long, we are celebrating the 75th anniversary of Strategic Air Command. We'll have more with retired Colonel Ed Birchfield and retired Lieutenant General Bob Henson next on the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Visit us online at sacmuseum.org. More of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast coming up. The Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum is the perfect place for any event. 
Whether it's 20 people or 2,000, the museum has a variety of unique spaces for your corporate event, wedding reception, birthday parties, trade shows, and more. Host your event surrounded by history and a collection that spans 70 years featuring aircraft that range from propeller aircraft of pre-World War II through the supersonic jet aircraft of the Cold War to the cutting-edge technology of manned space exploration. Discover how you can give your next event wings at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum. Visit sacmuseum.org. Promoting learning through imaginative, innovative, and inspirational educational programs and exhibits. Visit sacmuseum.org to learn more. Now back to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. John Leffler, Jr., alongside our curator, Brian York, uh, visiting with retired Colonel Ed Birchfield and retired Lieutenant General Bob Henson. And, Bob, you had mentioned something. This is a question for both of you, and I'm Brian. No, I'm I just, sorry, I just was going to bring up something here, right John. Um, <laughs> both of these, uh, gentlemen, you mentioned uh, alert duty, um, and that's something that, Yes, alert duty with which what I kind of know about just from all the reading stuff is SAC was always pulling these. One is to always have people ready because basically mm-hmm. the Soviets could launch at any time. We could come under attack. And it wasn't just them attacking another country, what we see, what happens today in the world. But it was actually, it was in preparation should the United States be attacked. So we always had people on alert. But my question is, and this is what I've read and I've talked with some other folks, when you're on alert, it's not just sitting around waiting for World War III, but they actually tested you guys. They threw scenarios at you, and you had to prepare to launch missiles. You had to prepare to take off the aircraft. Um, I guess, John, if it's okay with you, I'd, I guess start with Ed. What were those scenarios like? Were you aware it was an exercise, it was a practice, or did you think it was real? Well, the... Um you had testing all the time. You had what we call EWO testing, emergency war orders. And uh, I think the pass rate was 90, but if you got less than 100 and you went back and talked to training while you missed two questions, um, you had standboard, which was uh, the guys in white uniforms coming in and watching you perform your duty, uh, either in the missile capsule, <clears throat> excuse me, or uh, in the aircraft. Uh, you had trainers. You were in trainers all the time, uh, performing uh, the mission, and so it was. It was just a constant training. Uh, when you were in the caps on the missile side, when you were down in the capsule, the blast door was shut, and you were down there by yourself. Uh, then uh, you could uh, you you could study, run your checklist. You, you, there was always something to do uh, based on the 24 hours you were down there. On the missile side, uh, at least in the Minuteman system when I was in it, uh, once the blast door was closed and one of the crew members could sleep, uh, you had the two-man concept. Because you were involving nuclear weapons, you could never have just one person uh, that could control a nuclear weapon. But since we couldn't do anything, just the two of us anyhow, they allowed one to sleep. But for the most part, to do anything from the commander's console or the deputy's console, you both had to be there. And so we were continually running tests on the system. And then SAC, in its infinite wisdom, would come down all the time and run these different tests, drop kick, drop kick, you know, this is Sky King, and give us different scenarios. And they, there would be, 
your, your book of, of messages you'd go to and follow those, and some were just exercising the system, some were exercising you. Um, the, the only thing you really worried about, I ever worried about, was the SAC IG. Now, unlike today, the SAC IG, there'd be a 135 going somewhere, and they'd declare an in-flight emergency and wind up landing at your base. And then just all hell broke loose from that point in time, and they exercised everything. They did the same thing on the aircraft side. It was just as bad, and they had to launch aircraft. Uh, we, ha we had to exercise our missiles, and there were all kinds of tests you went through, maintenance, security. Everybody was a part of it on both sides, both the aircraft and the missile side, and that was the real test. And in the old days, uh, if, if you didn't pass an ORI, you got a lot of new leadership right away. The old story of Curt LeMay getting off what, the What air is an ORI? Operational Readiness Inspection. I'm okay. sorry. No, that's okay. Lots of acronyms in, sure, in the yeah. military. Lots of checklists, lots of acronyms. Right. And the old story of after a wing had busted and uh, General LeMay's coming up for the out briefing, he gets off the airplane, the wing commander, of course, on the ground greets him, and the, uh, General LeMay turns around and says, here, I'd like you to meet your replacement. And that's how it was in the old days. And that's the way it should be. If When you're a wing commander, you are literally in charge of everything, and when you say something, it gets done. And if you can't hack it, and if your troops can't pass an ORI, you shouldn't be a wing commander. And that's the way it ought to be today, but I don't think it is. So I have a question, because you've, you've brought up this a, a couple of times, and Bob, you mentioned this um, earlier, the, the strain, the, you, you use the word strenuous. With, with the, the threat that was out there that you were dealing with on a daily basis, you know, regardless of what people thought, perceived or otherwise, the threat that you were trained to address in, if we were attacked, did it, did it act, this is, how do I put this? Did it help with your stress levels to have those checklists? Just having that routine, having that, having everything t tightened down as much as it was, did that help you deal with the stress just as, just as a human on a daily basis? Um, the checklist, as Ed mentioned, is a, a series of steps that you take, regardless of whether you're running a checklist in the operation of the airplane. It has a, it has a sequence of events that occur as a result of whatever the process is that you're involved in, whether starting the aircraft all the way to getting the systems up and running to operating the airplane when it's airborne. The other side of the checklist when you're dealing with message traffic, and as Ed mentioned, we were always tested when we went on alert, meaning in an aircrew uh, vernacular, we would go to a, um, a alert facility, and it's where housed, we housed all the, uh, the aircraft pilots, both tanker and bomber, uh, and the crews uh, and the maintenance troops that actually serviced those airplanes while they were on alert. Um, and so from the alert facility, uh, what hasn't been mentioned is a klaxon. Talk about getting uh, your blood pressure up and the stress level going up. Your first klaxon is a, is a horn that goes off and it, it sounds all over the base, uh, especially in the, mil in the airplane business, 
because you didn't have to necessarily be in the alert facility 24 hours because part of your training, as was mentioned earlier, is going to simulators, doing your uh, electronic warfare study, your mission study, uh, the target study. You had to go, that was something you did as you come on alert every time, no matter whether you've done it a hundred times or once. You had to go do EWO study on a mission that you're supposed to fly. So the checklist put you through a message that would come over the air as a result of that klaxon or being sent to the airplane by message. And it, once you got in the cockpit, then while you're trying to get the airplane started, and there's dual things going on here. Pilots trying to get the airplane started, the navigator and the other crew members are listening for message traffic coming across the radios. And so that checklist forced us into following those steps every time, routinely. No deviation, you do it that way every time. Uh, and there was, after a while, you get sort of used to it. Mm -hmm. uh, the stress level sort of diminished as you got- Well, there's no guesswork. Aged in the, in the operation. So it was, it was really uh, the checklist and the discipline that, that went into these missions were incredible because there was no this, this was this was a fail-safe kind of operation you can't deviate from uh, the operation uh, those weapons had to operate every time all the time uh, and those checklists help you do that now you asked about the stress level uh, I, I guess i could say yeah every time you're on alert there was a level of stress uh, that the tension was always there when that horn went off the blood pressure went through the roof, and here you are, trying to race to the cockpit to get in and get get going. So, and that and and you were graded on it. Uh, as Ed said, sometimes we we would just start engines, and the message would then put you back in alert, just ground alert. Sometimes it would leave you in the cockpit. So there'd be days where you'd sit in the cockpit for 24 hours, and now the crews are bringing out, uh, you know, the uh, Maintenance crews are bringing out things to keep the air crew satisfied and going for that period of time. There are other times where you taxi, and it may be a taxi exercise where you get to the runway hold line, and you're sitting there waiting for the execution message that says take off. Uh, and then the next thing you might hear is a message that says, uh, you know, you're going to taxi down the runway. And what that does is you taxi to the end of the runway and turn around and come back to the alert facility. But all of that made every airplane at the time. And uh, most of the times there was six to eight B-52s and an equal number of tankers on alert at that time. Uh, and we were all postured against our targets and, and we were ready to execute against those targets every time. Uh, I was just gonna uh, ask you about, um, on the alerts and all these, and when you're going through there, all the, orders come through uh how often would you guys do a mito takeoff mito's minimum interval takeoffs thank you <laughs> <laughs> minimum interval takeoffs uh for alert uh meant that you had 12 seconds between airplanes uh in b-52s that could get pretty exciting most of the time uh, if we were on alert with nuclear weapons on board uh uh, we didn't really launch. Uh, I, I can't. Um, I can't remember in my career 
on alert that we ever launched from alert. Uh, we'd come close, but that dealing with nuclear weapons on board uh, in a peacetime environment, you had a lot of weight and uh, balance distribution things going on and getting back down to landing weights and all those kind of things. So it, it became a, big, a bigger deal if you're off the ground with nuclear weapons on board than just coming back from a normal uh, training sortie. Now, we did a lot of training sorties where we would do minimum interval takeoffs. Uh, and those minimum interval takeoffs would include, a, a, if we were running, uh, as Ed said, on an operational readiness inspection, an ORI, we were required to launch as if we were going to execute our mission, but without weapons on board the airplane. We might have a, a shape, a, a, you know, a weapons shape on board that we would drop on a range someplace, but the takeoffs uh, would typically uh, require every airplane in a sequence to take off uh, at 12 seconds apart. Um, uh, sometimes uh, they, after a while they changed that to 30 seconds, so there was a more interval between the airplanes because there's a lot of turbulence, especially in B-52s. Um, B-1s and FB-111s that I also flew wasn't as susceptible to the, uh, the weight balance or the uh, differential on the wings uh, as, as you were in in uh, B-52s because not only do we have the the problem with turbulence from the preceding airplane, but if you had any kind of problem with water injection into the engines, you know, G models at that time, uh, you had your hands full of an airplane that that needed all eight engines to be running at that heavy weight to, to get off the ground and to get, uh, you know, to altitude. So tension, tension was pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like it, stress was ubiquitous. Well, it, it, was, yeah, exactly. it was everywhere. <laughs> well, as Ed said, you know, there was no room for error, not, not in, in these airplanes and no sequences and no scenarios. It just, I mean, SAC was always at war. We were never not at war. Somebody was on alert, and your only job was to launch if you got the go code. So we weren't, you know, in a stand-down mode. Alert crews were always at war, period. Well, for both of you, when you think back on your time in Strategic Air Command, Ed, I'll start with you. What, what do you regard as either the most significant event or achievement, accomplishment, a time that w when somebody mentions Strategic Air Command to you that your mind automatically goes back to? Well, the, the, the best for me was when I was a squadron commander. I had the 10th uh, Strategic Missile Squadron, which was the first missile squadron uh, that came up on alert. And um, you're never as close to your people as when you're a squadron commander. It's just a fun job. You know, it's a, it's, it's a great mission, but you're right there with your people. And then when you get to be a wing commander, you got all these squadrons and you have to do all these other things. A lot more responsibility, but not near as much fun. Uh, one of the other rewarding times for me was uh, one of the several times I was at SAC headquarters and I worked for General Ellis, who was the SINC, a great, great man, um, a B-24 pilot, in uh, World War II down in uh, Papua New Guinea in that area. And I was his special assistant, but I was his speechwriter. And 
Let me tell you, writing speeches for three years is a lot harder than it sounds, uh, especially when you talk to the same group the second time and you thought the first time you wrote it, it was great, and what do you say to them the second time? But General Ellis was just a magnificent uh, gentleman and leader, and uh, I, I really enjoyed that. But, but still, uh, command is the, is the essence, I think, of what you get to do, uh, we did in SAC. The most significant thing that happened to me was the year before I got in SAC when I was at Thule, when a B-52 loaded with nuclear weapons crashed up there. It was called, um, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the mission now. I'll think of it. And they flew a, an orbit over uh, the North Pole, loaded with nuclear weapons, had an onboard fire. Um, they uh, declared an emergency, tried to, tried to get down to uh, Thule. We had a, a good runway. Uh, but it was too late, and everybody got out except one guy who was on board just getting some time. He was a flight surgeon. He, he perished. Uh, the airplane, after everybody bailed out, uh, did a power stall over the, over the base and, and crashed about seven miles out in Baffin Bay, which was frozen. And we spent the next uh, nine months recovering all the pieces and serial numbers off of bombs and scraping up debris and shipping it out. And SAC came in with more people TDY than we had PCS at Thule and couldn't understand why we couldn't meet all of their needs. General Hunsaker, he was the guy in charge. I remember that. So I, I think I remember what TDY is an acronym Temporary for. duty. Right. And then what was the other one, PCS? PCS, permanent change the station. Uh, and as General Hinton said, I, I, one thing I want to mention, he talked about going to Blytheville and the one thing about SAC, and it's really the same in all the Air Force, it's not just the guy or gal, the, the officer or enlisted person that is working the job. It's the whole family. Wives and kids are as much a part and were as much a part of the Strategic Air Command as the guys and gals who were on active duty were. We just drag them all over the place. And in the middle of the night, you get up and leave and say, I'll see you sometime. And, and they just picked up and did what they had to do. And it, it was just a, it's a partnership. And SAC always got two for the price of one. Bob, for you, when you, when you think back on your time in Strategic Air Command, an achievement, accomplishment, uh, just an actual event, something that just your mind immediately goes back to that when you think of, of your time. Surviving day to day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, back, uh, uh, Ed mentions time before even I was in the, in the Air Force and SAC. Uh, but, it, you know, I think the thing that stuck with me uh, as I reflected on this years and years ago uh, was the number of airplanes, the number of missiles that we had at that time. Um, my recollection uh, when I came on active duty uh, in SAC, we had over 450 B-52s. Uh, more tankers than that. Uh, ICBMs, I can't even imagine how many ICBMs we had on, on, uh, oper in operation at that time. So you think about the, the, the uh, nuclear power that was demonstrated by any one wing of an air, you know, an air base or a missile base, uh, you had more power uh, in what was on your base uh, than any place else in the world. The, the sober uh, inclinations of that, that at any one time you could have 
the, that level of power associated with uh, you personally uh, was pretty challenging. Uh, I think the, the thing that I always tried to instill in my air crews uh, was the consequences of going to nuclear war. What was that going to be like? And to, to know that you're going to launch on your mission and you're going to come back to a smoking hole, your family's going to be gone. So put this in the back of your brain while you're still trying to operate your mission and execution, execute a mission across the globe. Uh, that's pretty sobering when you think about it. Um, you know, there were lots of things that, that pilots can give you all kinds of war stories about there I was, you know, at, at uh, certain altitudes or, or those kind of things. But flying low levels, uh, training for low levels that took you down to 400 feet across mountainous areas at night in the weather, uh, those are things that will get your attention, especially when you try to look outside and there's nothing but black. It's just a dark hole. And yet you're relying on the instrumentation. You're relying on your crewmates uh, to keep you out of trouble. And, you know, over the years that I was in, in SAC and in the military, uh, flying airplanes and those kind of conditions, the worst day is having a crew member or a crew crash into the side of a mountain or uh, get disoriented and, and ended up, uh, uh, you know, crashing an airplane or any number of things. Um, you know, I, I took off on a training mission in 111s out of Plattsburgh, uh, one year, uh, left, went out, we did our training mission, came back. Uh, we were doing hot seat changeovers to the next crew. I handed off to the next pilot and navigator that got into the FB-111. Uh, they took off. They went the same route that I went previous in our training sortie. We took off, hit a tanker, went to the low-level entry point, flew a low-level route, so returned, did one approach, uh, for training, one approach to land, switched airplanes. Um, I got, uh, when I got out of the airplane, gave it to that other pilot, there was never any expectation that this is not, just not going to be a normal day. Well, they never returned. Uh, in the descent to the low-level route, at night, in the weather, uh, they crashed in the ocean. Uh, they somehow got disoriented, disoriented uh, and crashed in the ocean. Uh, uh, to this day, if you ask my wife, uh, the thing she feared most about my flying was that. Yeah. You know, and I think it's important you brought up, uh, Ed, the, the fact that, and, and, and I'm gathering this as, we, as we're, we're doing all of these stories and hearing everything, just the, not only the, the, the commitment and the sacrifice that, you all and everyone else that we're visiting with gave this country and what strategic air command did, but the spouses and the kids and what they had to go through. You know, one of the things that really hit me Bob, when you were mentioning earlier is, you know, your, your wife and eight month old child arriving at a base and there's nobody there. And it's just, you know, dad's gone. Um, it's incredible, and it's why what we're doing, I think, with this series on, on Strategic Air Command's 75th anniversary is so important, and I really appreciate you sharing your stories. One thing that I did want to end with, though, before we wrap up is um, life after Strategic Air Command for both of you. Um, you know, you 
obviously that career came to an end. So Ed, for you, life, what, what did life look like? What does life look like now? Well, I retired out. Besides of, keeping me in line here at the yeah, museum. So. I understand. I, I retired out of Langley uh, when uh, we stood the three commands down, SAC, TAC, and MAC, and stood up the new commands, Air Combat Command and the other ones. Um, I went over with provisional command to Langley, so I, I retired out of there and had absolutely no, no idea what I was going to do when I, my wife stayed in, in Omaha, uh, what I was going to do when I got back here. Uh, at the time, uh, Lieutenant General Leo Smith, who had been the vice commander of SAC, uh, had retired and started an organization called the Society of the Strategic Air Command. Dutch Heiser, General Dutch Heiser, threw $20 bill at him at the General Smith's retirement and said, start something, and he did. And so I worked with uh, General Smith uh, for about a year, and uh, then I went to work for a small company uh, and then wound up at the Chamber of Commerce. And I can tell any retiring Air Force person, if you want to know how a city works, go to work for the Chamber of Commerce, work for the Omaha Chamber of Commerce, great organization. And after a couple years of that, I wound up at Valmont Industries, which uh, for satisfaction as far as doing good things for people, that was as close as I could get to what we were doing in the Air Force was working for Valmont, whose primary mission is center pivot irrigation systems, among other things. But it was a wonderful life, a complete change from a nuclear mission to how do we get more dollars down to the bottom line and make the shareholders a profit? And I just loved it, it was great. It, it was something, you know, my degree was in accounting, which I didn't need in the Air Force. When you ran out of debits, you just went to Congress and they gave you more. And so uh, this was a great opportunity to, one, use my education, but two, to just work for a company and and try to create shareholder value. Loved it. Great, yeah, and, great and, opportunity. And we certainly appreciate Valmont Industries because they've been wonderful supporters of a lot of the different exhibits and, and uh, other areas of, of the museum. So. Bob, for you, life after you, you, that, you, you closed the book on Strategic Air Command, and then what was next? Uh, when I left uh, SAC, I, I ended up at uh, Space Command. I was the wing commander at the, 40, uh, at the 45th Space Wing in Florida. I ran the space launch operations uh, there for a couple of years. I uh, went from there to Peterson, where I was the director of operations at Space Command for a few years. It was a period of time where the space and ICBMs were merged and we had uh, the operations of both space systems and, uh, and ICBM systems at the time. Uh, from there, I, I'll get around to the point that I went uh, to uh, uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base uh, where we did both missile and space operations. I was the 14th Air Force Commander uh, at Vandenberg, uh, left there after a couple of years, uh, ended up as the vice commander at, at Stratcom, uh, spent a couple of years at Stratcom before returning to uh, Space Command as the vice commander um, uh, and, and spent about a year and a half before I retired. I retired uh, in 2003 out of Space Command um, I went to work for a company called Northrop Grumman. Mm -hmm. I was with Northrop Grumman uh, uh, managing uh, their operations here uh, in Omaha. Uh, spent about 10 years, almost 10 years with Northrop Grumman and reached a ripe old age of 65 
and they have a policy that as a vice president in a company, when you hit 65, you retire. So I retired uh, literally with Northrop Grumman, uh, and uh, that's when the University uh, of Nebraska, uh, J.B. Milligan was uh, starting up what was called the UARC, the University Affiliated Research Center. It had been assigned uh, to support STRATCOM, and, and I became the, the, the executive director for the National Strategic Research Institute under the University of Nebraska. Uh, I spent uh, eight and a half years with the university, and I retired uh, back in December of 2020. My wife tells me I've failed retirement three times, so she's <laughs> expecting the worst. She's expecting the worst out of this at this point. So uh, I think this time I'm done, though. I, I've enjoyed a lot of in, engagement with, uh, uh, with all those operations. But, uh, you know, after settling here, we have been here since 2003. The, the longest time we stayed anywhere was like two years. Uh, and one location we had four years, but that was an exception. Uh, but this is the longest time that we've spent anywhere. Uh, like Ed, uh, I agree, if you want to know what's going on in the city, work with the chambers, because they're out and about trying to support the businesses and support the communities and the like, and they do a great job. I couldn't couldn't uh, even come close to, to uh, duplicating what they've done over the years, just look at the progress in this community and around town and the like, and it's just phenomenal. Um, but, you know, I, some keep asking me, well, okay, now you're retired, where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. Um, when we retired this time, we decided that uh, we're not moving again. Uh, after 25 moves, that's enough. Uh, and so uh, we're here to stay, and, and I think this this community is a large part of the reason why we stay. It's it's a great community. There's lots of things to see and do. We're sitting in one of the greatest uh, attractions in the whole state, mm -hmm. so it's pretty good. Yeah, and really, that's that's what we're doing. Uh, you know, you, you use the word community. That's that's really what this. This series is about celebrating 75 years of Strategic Air Command with retired uh, Lieutenant General Bob Henson and retired Colonel Ed Birchfield. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And like we've asked other SAC warriors, um, I'll ask you as well, if we can get around to it maybe again later this year, could we visit with, some, uh, visit with you for some uh, more stories? We'll embellish on anything. Yeah, they get better as you tell them the second time. <laughs> Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Hey, you bet. This has been the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Email marketing at sacmuseum.org for more information, questions, and suggestions. Learn more about events, programs, and exhibits at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org.